we're going to be dealing with issues of pride and humility. You remember that last week, Peter told his readers that they should rejoice when they are reviled by others, inasmuch as those trials confirm that they are united to Christ and that therefore they will be saved from the judgment to come. Peter now calls for a humble spirit to prevail among God's people, from the leaders on down. Leaders are to lead in humility, and the rest are to follow in humility as well. And as usual, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that God does not only call us to be humble, but he gives us what we need that enables us to be humble as well. Let's look at these uh, verses, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a humble people, give us humble leaders, and cause us to be a humble people. We know, Father, that in order to be truly humble, we need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to give us a a sense and a taste for your glory that we might also then seek to do good to others to the praise and honor of your name. Father, teach us humility and impress upon our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit what you have provided for us as you describe it in these verses that enables us to be humble. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you describe yourself as a humble person? Sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? I mean, who but somebody who is proud would answer yes to that question. Uh, As soon as we hear such a question, are you humble? Of course, pride stands uh, by to uh, seize opportunity to make us proud of how humble we think that we are. It's a difficult question. Pride is crafty not only because it likes to use even humility to make us proud, but also because it tends to hide itself from us. I remember being in college and we studied uh, this line uh, from a Greek philosopher, I think it was Heraclitus. Uh, The phrase was, hiding hides itself. You have to chew on that for a little bit. Hiding hides itself. In other words, when something is hidden from you, there is a double blindness. Not only is it hidden from you, but you are also unaware that anything is hidden from you. It's like that moment before you discovered that your keys are missing. 
Before you discovered that your keys were missing, your keys were already uh, missing, but you did not know that they were missing. They're sort of a double blindness. I wrote that analogy between, uh, before uh, losing my keys just recently. In fact, they are still lost, so you can pray for that. Uh, it is easy to lose uh, your keys, but hiding hides itself. Uh, pride hides itself from our own hearts. And as a result of being deceived by our own pride, we begin to think that we are humble when in fact we are not. You know the line, the greatest trick that the devil, devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. The greatest craftiness of our own pride is to convince us that it doesn't exist, that we are humble when in fact we are proud. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, Peter says. But how can we know that we are humble when pride is so crafty? There's a line in a U2 song that says, uh, that goes like this. You think it's easier to put the finger on the trouble when the trouble is in you. And you think it's easier to know your own tricks. Well, it's the hardest thing you will ever do. There is trouble in our hearts. Pride. And the hardest thing that we will ever do is to learn our own tricks of hiding our own pride from ourselves. Is there a way to answer this in any sort of way, to have any sort of sense for whether we are humble, given that pride is so exceedingly crafty? And I would propose to you that we ask a different question rather than asking, are we humble? A question that our own pride cannot so easily distort. And that question is a twofold question. The first part is this Do you have an exceeding, uh, a consuming passion for the glory of the Lord that leads you to do everything that you do to the praise and the glory of God? And do you do this not because you have to, but because you want to, because you know how good God is? What wonderful care He takes towards you. I know that's a long question. Do you live for God's glory? Not because you have to, but because you want to, because you know how good God is. Or to put the question in reverse order, do you know how good God is towards you in Jesus Christ? And does that lead you to live for Christ alone? If you and I cannot answer that with an unequivocal yes, we are proud, hard as that is to admit. The second part of the question is, do you spend as much time and effort thinking about the good of other people, those around you, as you do thinking about yourself? And again, if we cannot under, you know, answer that with an equivocal, yes, I spend as much time and effort thinking about others as I do about myself, then you are a proud person. And you're not alone. I, this week... As I prepared this, as I studied God's word, I was not prepared for what God was going to do in my own heart and life. As uh, God, as I studied uh, this passage more and more, he impressed upon me how proud a person I am. How I, you know, thoughts for God's glory do not naturally arise in my heart. I don't spontaneously think about the good of others as I spontaneously think about my own good and what I want. I'm proud of my own opinions and oftentimes think that they are superior to other people's and it creates conflict in my life. I tend to be very proud of my ability to figure things out on my own. 
and therefore I don't pray. Not like I should. I should pray out of a sense of need. But instead, so often I pray just out of a sense of obligation. Uh, pride is an ugly thing, and it breaks uh, communities apart. Today, as Peter ministers to us and to the people that he wrote to originally, they are experiencing opposition to their faith. They needed to come together and to support one another as they were experiencing this opposition. But Peter knew that pride tends to break the church apart when people are proud. And therefore, he exhorts from the leaders on down, especially the leaders, that they would lead by their example, the flock in humility. If the leaders are humble, the flock tends to follow in that humility. So today, as we look at this passage and as we examine our own struggles with pride and the way that it manifests it in your heart and in your life, as it does in mine, we'll look at humble shepherds. We'll look at the humble flock and God's provision for both. Uh, there is good news. There is something you need to know that God has provided you, which enables you and me to be humble, which sets us free from our pride. As we look at this today, first of all, we look at uh, humble shepherds. As I said, the local church is being threatened by opposition from the surrounding community. You remember how they are being maligned. They are being slandered as evildoers. They are being mistreated. They are being misunderstood and misrepresented in others, and it is creating conflicts and difficulties for them as a community. The need of the moment is humble leaders, leaders who will lead the flock in humility and therefore lead the whole uh, flock in humility, and uh, therefore the people will uh, rally together and support one another. And this passage, it really struck me, Peter is not so much telling elders what to do, shepherd the flock, exercise oversight, as he is telling them how to do those things. They are to do it not under compulsion, but voluntarily. They are not to do it according to sordid, or for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not lording it over the flock, but rather proving to be examples of humility. The things that Peter tells the shepherds not to do all have to do with selfishness, with issues of pride. He is calling the leaders to lead as an example of humility. You might be able to see how all of the things that Peter says uh, shepherds are not to do, you might see how they are related to pride. If we start with sordid gain, that's an obvious one. That's a, that's a selfish interest. We think, when you think of sordid gain, we naturally think of uh, money. You know, ministers or people that are in ministry for the money. But there are a lot of other things that we can seek selfishly to get out of ministry. We can seek positions of leadership for our own honor, for our own status. We can uh, get involved and take a leadership position in ministry in order to feel important, to feel a sense of personal fulfillment and obligation as I, or uh, uh, fulfillment as I accomplish things. Or sometimes we can serve merely not to feel guilty. We know how powerful the guilt motive is. I don't want to feel guilty and therefore I will serve, which is fundamentally a selfish motive for taking a leadership position in ministry. In that frame of mind, two things happen uh, as Peter directs our attention. First of all, 
uh, we begin to serve under compulsion. When you don't really have a heart for ministry, you're not ministering for ministry's sake in order for God's glory to do good for other people, you, uh, ministry, the, the work of shepherding and exercising oversight begins to be a hassle. It is a hassle. It is a necessary evil, something you have to do in order to get what you really want, which is, in some cases, the money, the fame, the sense of importance or personal fulfillment. You're really looking to get other things, and what happens is you begin to serve under obligation, under compulsion. I feel duty-bound to do these things, but my heart is not in it. I'm not a willing participant, a willing servant. And the second thing that happens is you begin to lord it over other people. You begin to be somebody who is very domineering and dominating in your relationships with other people. You are, as a leader, agitated in your soul. You cannot stand it when things do not go your way. You uh, think that when others disagree with you, it's not that they have a different perspective, but they, they are evil. There is something wrong with them that they don't agree with me. You begin to lord it over other people. You begin to use your power for your own purposes to accomplish your will rather than humbly seeking God's will as you lead the church. Selfish leaders who are in it for some personal gain for themselves serve under compulsion and they tend to begin to lord it over other people. And sometimes it leads to burnout. This week I was reminded of uh, Jack Miller. Jack Miller was a Presbyterian pastor and a seminary professor. And he was in ministry for 20 years. And uh, initially he had gotten into the ministry for God's glory and to do good for other people. But soon in subtle ways, and he didn't realize it when it was happening, but he began to serve for himself. He became increasingly angry and disillusioned and disappointed. The people uh, that he was ministering to his church members, his students were not changing the way that he thought that they should change. And he felt powerless. He, he felt helpless. I don't, he did not know what to do in order to help people change in the ways that they ought to be changing. And it came to a crisis point in his ministry where he resigned from both the church and from the seminary. And he went into a period of deep uh, depression. He said for a while he could do nothing had no motivation to do anything whatsoever except to cry in his own brokenness and powerlessness. And as the Lord brought him to that state of brokenness, the Lord began to reveal to him what his fundamental problem was. He had begun to make ministry about him. The ministry, as he was involved with it, had to serve his ego. He was relying on his own wisdom, leaning on his own understanding, so he was trying to do God's work his way. And ultimately, he said the problem was he began to rely on the wrong person to do the work of ministry, himself. He ought to have been relying upon Christ to do the work of ministry and himself as a servant to the interests and the work of Christ. He began uh, to have a sense of renewal as he studied the promises of God, as he studied the work of the Holy Spirit, as he studied the ongoing work of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts is a whole record of Christ's ongoing work as king of the church. And those things, as he began to take his focus off himself and put it uh, on the Lord, he began to experience a renewed joy and passion in his ministry. 
And he began to be an example in the church and still is remembered as an example of true humility. He returned to the ministry, to his church, and he served to uh, service, but he never forgot the importance of focusing on God's glory and the work of Jesus Christ instead of the way, you know, obsessing about all the work and the things that he is doing. He became uh, very aware of the presence of the Lord with him in ministry, how he really needed to keep his eyes on the Lord and pray that the Lord would work in ministry. And that's true humility. We need humble leaders, and humble leaders are healed of their pride, and they become people that are willing in service. They are eager to serve. They're not serving in their own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. And instead of lording it over others, they are an example to the whole flock of true humility. I've reminded you before, uh, many times, of C.S. Lewis's definition of humility, but it bears repeating, that humility, true humility, is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In other words, truly humble people do not spend a lot of time thinking about themselves, thinking highly or little of themselves. What they do is they spend all, the bulk of their time thinking about the glory of the Lord, the wonder of who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And they spend a lot of time thinking about other people. They just don't obsess about themselves that much. That is the definition of true love. True love is to love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. And if we are truly humble, what fills our thoughts and our hearts and our minds is thoughts of God. We think of God far more above anything that we think about, and we also think of other people, at least as much as we think about ourselves. That is true humility, and that is true uh, love for other people. Christ wants his church to be led by humble elders, elders who are consumed for God's glory and have a passion, are filled with a passion to do good for the flock. They serve out of eagerness and willingness. And that is part of the, uh, that's the true heart of what we call the Presbyterian form of church government. Here in this passage, uh, it is elders who are called to lead, and it is Christ's will that his church, that his people be led by elders in this way as uh, humble leaders in the church. It has always struck me as an odd thing that our church is named Presbyterian, because Presbyterian refers to a form of church government. And there are historical reasons for that. But for now, I just want to draw your attention that that word for elders, it's the first word in verse 1 of chapter 5, is presbyteros, from which we get our name Presbyterian. Uh, And in uh, the uh, universal witness of Scripture is that uh, uh, Christ wants his church to be led by elders. In Acts 14, verse 23, we read that as Paul and Barnabas went about on their missionary journeys, we read that uh, it was their practice. In every church, they appointed elders to lead. You remember in Acts 20, when Paul is leaving Ephesus, he calls a session meeting. He calls the elders together, and he meets with them, and he uh, gives them instructions because he wants to leave the church in good hands. Christ wants his church to be led by elders. Here in this passage, we read that it is the elders who are to shepherd the flock and who are to exercise oversight. There is a uh, letter. It's one of the earliest Christian documents that we have, perhaps the earliest Christian documents. It's uh, from a man named Clement. Actually, it's written anonymously, but we think that it was written by Clement. 
uh, the year is somewhere between 80 and 140. And in the earliest of Christian documents, he refers to the church and he says, there are two offices in the church, elders and deacons. Sort of refers, this uh, is the way that God wants his church to be led. You can go all the way back to Moses. You remember how Moses appointed 70 elders to help lead God's people. Christ wants his church to be led by elders, but he wants uh, in a particular way, not just any elders and not just in any way, he wants them to be led by elders who lead the flock as examples of humility. When the flock is led by shepherds who are humble, the whole flock becomes humble. The logic also uh, works in reverse. When uh, the leaders are proud, when they serve under compulsion and they're lording it over other people, it has an effect on the whole flock. It tends to break the whole flock apart as each one commits themselves to pride. When the flock is led by humble leaders, the whole flock tends to become humble. So we want to look at the humble flock as well. This is equally important that the flock would be humble. In verse 5, he says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And it's not just the younger men. All of you, and all of you includes elders themselves. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, the writer instructs us as believers to obey our leaders and to submit to them so that they can lead with joy and not in grief. The way that we follow can make the leadership of those who are seeking to shepherd the flock a burden, a grief. Or in the way that we can lead, we can make it an example of joy. We are to follow our leaders in their humility. They are not to dominate us, and we are to willingly submit ourselves to them. Jack Miller, the man that I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, talks about going on a mission trip to Uganda. And when he was teaching Ugandans the Presbyterian form of church government, of all things, they suddenly exclaimed, and they, they said, we need this so that we don't all try to act like kings. Now, you have to understand what they meant. It is not that we can't all act like kings, only some people get to act like kings, the elders. That is not what they were trying to say. But rather, the uh, understanding of the Presbyterian form of church government is that Christ is the king. There is one king, the rest of us are just servants. Some servants lead, some servants follow, all of us are servants. We are not all kings. Not even elders are to conduct themselves like kings. There is one, Lord Jesus Christ. He is preeminent, and the rest of us are serving in our various roles and relationships. We need leaders who lead with humility, but we also need to follow with humility. And what a difference that makes. We are not to follow with a grumbling attitude. In one of uh, Avon's books, there's an old man named Old Sneep. And he was childhood friends with a man named Colonel Carter. And Colonel Carter was uh, regarded as the town's most important citizen. He had built all these, uh, built a hospital, built a library. Uh, he had built a monument uh, for all the sons that that community had sent to war and who had died. And uh, so uh, he had been gone out on business for a number of years. He was coming back to the town. And so the whole town is caught up, and they're going to throw this celebration for Colonel Carter when he arrives. But there, as the whole town is caught up in all this buzz and getting ready and planning the big party, the big reception, there sits old Sneep, aptly named old Sneep. 
And he's sitting there on the, uh, the park bench in the middle of the town square. And as everybody is uh, you know, joyfully planning, he is there grumbling. And he's whittling. And uh, this is what he says, and I quote, I knew him from when we was boys. He ain't a mite better than you or me, and he needs taking down a peg or two. And old Snee viewed it as his obligation to make sure that Colonel Carter was not going to become too proud by receiving all this acclaim. He was going to take his childhood friend, which he knew to be nothing more than a man, he was going to take him down a, a peg or two. The whole time, while everyone's joyfully, uh, you know, uh, planning the reception, he sits grumbling. That is not how we, uh, Christ wants us to follow our leaders. We are not to sit there grumbling about our leadership. But rather, we are to joyfully and willingly submit ourselves. We are to clothe ourselves with humility, just as the elders clothe themselves with humility. And to clothe yourselves with humility is an act of choice. Uh, some people uh, think that uh, in uh, verse 5, when he says clothe yourselves with humility, he's referring to an actual like an apron, sort of a uniform. And he is saying, on a daily basis, you must make a conscientious decision when you wake up in the morning. Put your apron on. Put on the guise and the whole garb of a servant, and therefore, uh, conduct yourselves accordingly. Humility is a choice, and you must commit yourself on a daily basis to be the servant of others. Just as Peter has described the Christian community, or called the Christian community to do in 2 verse 13. Submit yourselves as to be the servants of all. Our culture is very suspicious of power, as you are no doubt aware. Oftentimes, sadly, leaders have earned a reputation for suspicion. In our culture, it is uh, very common to think that wherever uh, one person has power, sure enough, you will find somebody that is being oppressed. Power inherently means that somebody is going to be oppressed if one person has power and another does not. If one person takes a leadership position, Everyone is immediately suspicious of them. And that is a deeply uh, American idea. We know, as Americans, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. We are a democracy, or at least a republic, and we uh, are very suspicious of leaders. And the point is well taken, the suspicion of power and those in leadership positions, so long as we are on our own, to make our own way in this life. In order for you and for me to be truly humble, whether we are leaders or whether we are those who are under leadership, if we are to be truly humble, the difference that we need is we need to see what God has given us that enables us to have a uh, radically different relationship as leaders and as those who are under leadership. There I want to look at God's humble provision, or God's provision for humble shepherds, and the humble flock. He's given them two things, as I'm sure you noticed in this passage. He has given them an unfading crown of glory. And he has given them assurance of God's intense personal care for them. Those uh, two things uh, is what God has uh, given us that enables us to be proud, or to be humble, rather. First, God holds before our eyes the unfading crown of glory. And as I said, that is a remarkable thing for sinners like you and me to anticipate receiving on Christ's return an unfading crown of glory. Glory here is enhancement of honor and status. 
That is going to be ours. It is an incredible thing because, as you know, what we deserve in Christ's return in and of ourselves is God's judgment instead. But God, you know, all of us are natural-born rebels. All of us are not good at being humble and thinking of God's glory and submitting ourselves to serve other people. None of us is very good. None of us is humble in that sense. We are all natural-born rebels. We don't like being under authority. We don't even like being under God's authority. But God himself, the great king against whom we have rebelled, sent his son to receive the judgment that we deserve for our pride and our rebellion in order that instead of us receiving judgment, we might receive instead an unfading crown of glory. When that knowledge pierces your heart and when you think about who it is that is giving this crown of glory and how it is yours, it will change your heart. Ponder that unfading crown of glory which is held out for all who are in Christ. And then ask yourself, after you have spent time contemplating it, what was I obsessing over? Don't you see how it enables you to be humble? The very thing that your pride has been clamoring for, status, recognition, honor, me. Christ gives you at his own expense. Don't you see how that sets you free? You don't have to clamor for your own status. It is freely given to you in Jesus Christ. And even if the world does not recognize the honor that is yours in Christ right now, in due time they will. When Christ returns, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. It is already yours. And what I want you to know, first of all, in your struggles with pride, is you are free. Don't you see that Christ freely gives the very thing your pride is clamoring for? Since you have it, you are free from your pride in that sense. But secondly, God cares for you. And there's an idiom that uh, Peter uses that I found striking. It's not quite what I expected when I was uh, translating this week. Uh, but it's at the very end of verse 7. Because he cares for you. Now, you know what an idiom is. An idiom is a cultural expression. It makes sense in one culture. Native speakers understand it. But when it's translated into another culture, it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound right. And that's sort of what Peter has here. Literally, if you were to translate it woodenly, it would be, uh, it matters to him concerning you. Uh, because he cares for you is sort of the way they render it. But literally, it, it matters to him concerning you. Now, we have to be clear, and we have to chew on that for a little bit. What, is, what does that mean? When it says, uh, you know, be anxious for nothing, uh, but, you know, cast, your, or, uh, sorry, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Uh, he is not saying, first of all, that God, uh, don't worry, because God is as concerned about the thing that you're worried about as you are. We know that oftentimes God has a different concern than we do that is weighing heavily so, uh, so heavily upon our hearts. So it's not, you know, a, a cast your anxiety on the Lord. He cares just, about, just as much about the thing that you're obsessing over as you care about. Uh, what is said is a little bit more profound. What he's saying is ca uh, cast all of your anxiety on him because he is intentionally, intensely, personally concerned for you. Maybe not everything that you're going through, maybe not exactly the concerns that are weighing so heavily upon your heart, but what God is concerned about is you. You matter to God personally. And do you see how that begins to set you free 
as well from your struggles with pride. First of all, notice, uh, oftentimes we quote this scripture, right? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But we lift it out of context. Don't you see the context? Uh, Verse 6 and 7, if you'll look there, are one sentence, and they are meant to be read together in context. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It all hangs together. In other words, first of all, uh, Peter is telling you how to become humble. Uh, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How? By casting all your anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for you. What is your anxiety in context? It is all the uh, clamoring of your pride. You obsess over yourself, your own status, your own recognition, whether you personally are getting ahead in life. You're always tempted to look after yourself and why serve other people? You know, one of the things, if you commit yourself to being humble and you, as you begin to think about other people, what happens? Eventually, you will notice other people getting ahead of where you are in life. And it will become a struggle, and you will say to yourself, I need to start looking after myself. Your attention will be drawn back to yourself, and you will, again, once again, be proud and self-serving. When you are pouring yourself out and seeking to serve others in humility, and you feel like you're falling behind everyone else, all your peers are getting ahead of where you are, What you need to know is God cares for you. It sets you free, once again. You don't have to obsess about you. God is intensely concerned for you as a person. So long as you're on your own, you will always be proud. You'll say, who's going to look after me? Nobody cares for me like I care for me. God cares for you. You matter to him. It is a matter to him concerning you. You personally matter to God. And when you realize that, and when the Spirit ministers that to your heart, you say, why am I obsessing over my own status and honor? Why am I trying always to look after myself as though nobody's looking after me? God is looking after you. And that's Peter's message. We become humble as we cast ourselves on the Lord. And when we see how much he cares for us, that's when we, God, we begin to have a taste for God's glory. What a great God. What a kind God. How exalted he is in his love towards us in Jesus Christ. Christ took the judgment in our place in order that we might receive instead an unfading crown of glory. Why do I obsess about my own personal glory and achieving that for myself? If you are here this morning as we've talked, if you have realized that you are a proud person like me, and you answer no to both of those questions. I do not live with a consuming passion for God's glory like I should, and I do not think about other people the way that I should. In the midst of that struggle, I hope, first of all, that the Holy Spirit helps you to see that you have a problem with pride, like I do, as he did for me this week. But I hope you'll also hear the good news that sets you free. What I need to hear in my struggles with pride It's the good news that there is in store for me, even me, an unfading crown of glory from a God who cares intensely for me on a personal level. It will enable you to be humble. It will set you free. It will change the nature of your struggles with pride. It will draw you outside of yourself that you may glory in the Lord and seek to serve others. I pray that God would make us, here at Bethel Church as a people, as we hear this good news, gospel for growth, that we might grow in humility, 
that as the Holy Spirit ministers it to us, the world might see a different way that leaders, those in leadership positions and those under leadership, can relate to each other in humility. As we all are concerned for the glory of the Lord, and we seek to serve others in a way that honors him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would minister to our hearts the wonderful news that there is in store, even for sinners like us, even in the midst of our pride and our failures, there is yet an unfading crown of glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Father, the good news that you care for us and you're looking after us, help us, Father. Forgive us, first of all, for obsessing over our own pride and status and lot in life. When you, Father, look after us so faithfully in Christ, has already shed his blood that we might receive such an incredible crown of glory. Father, why would we seek the praise of men when you are the one who gives a crown of glory? You yourself will exalt us in due time. So, Father, help us to persevere in humility. When we see perhaps others getting ahead of ourselves, Father, protect our hearts. Keep us in the knowledge that we belong to you and you're looking after us. There is glory in store, so help us to focus rather on you above all things, but also on continuing to do good for others, that we might be servants of all as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is printed.